0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. In the past few months, we have released around 30 interviews on various aspects of the coronavirus crisis as part of our special COVID-19 coverage. But because we prioritized those episodes due to the timely fashion and urgency of the crisis, we actually delayed the scheduled release of some of our earlier interviews, which are equally fascinating and important. One group of those interviews come from the 2020 annual conference of Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. And this year, our conference theme is Development Finance in Fragile States. Some of you may know that I love attending academic conferences, I get to hear fascinating ideas that people are working on across the world, and I get to interview some of those scholars and policymakers about their journeys. This interview with Dr. Brad Zetzer was recorded at our 2020 annual conference during our 30-minute lunch break. He is the Stephen A. Tannenbaum Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Analysis in the US Treasury from 2011 to 2015, where he worked on Europe's financial crisis, currency policy, financial sanctions, commodity shocks, and the Puerto Rico debt crisis. He gave a fascinating presentation during the conference on foreign currency reserves and how capital flows through shell companies are driving international balance of payments. He highlighted the puzzling debt history of two countries in particular, Japan, which should be in trouble but is not, and Argentina, which gets into trouble no matter what. Making sense of this puzzle, Dr. Zetzer said, calls for a renewed focus on the ratio of external debt to exports as a measure of risk, rather than just focusing on the government debt alone. You may read more about Dr. Zetzer's presentation on our webpage, and you can subscribe to his blog and newsletter, Follow the Money, on the webpage of Council on Foreign Relations. In this interview, we mainly discussed issues related to capital flow and taxation. It wouldn't be an understatement to say that Dr. Zetzer's works very much inspired me personally to read more about tax policies and how therefore, as a result, I am currently doing summer economic research on taxation and inequality. This interview also touches on topics in financial economics and how Dr. Zetzer appeared in the first chapter of Adam II's book, Crashed, Uh, As some of you may know, we interviewed Adam Tooze last spring as one of our first interviews of Policy Punchline. It was a fascinating conversation into the field of financial economics. It's very unfortunate that my interview with Dr. Zetzer was a very short one, but I hope that this can be an introduction to a vast and important field of issues that you may continue to learn about afterwards. I hope you enjoy, and here's my interview with Dr. Brad Zetzer. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much for inviting me.
0: Of course. Uh, So why don't we just begin the interview with a very broad uh, question that uh, might take us anywhere uh, you hope to be. So you worked at at such a wide range of sort of capacities, you know, both in um, public service at the Treasury and now at the Council on Foreign Relations. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about your background, what what kind of got you to the Treasury and now uh, to Council on Foreign Relations?
1: Uh, well, I actually did my uh, Ph.D. in international relations. Um, I I did a Ph.D. in a different era, uh, and I had no expectation of going into academia. And my first job was as a career civil servant at the Department of Treasury. And uh, that I arrived just as the Asian financial crisis was sort of breaking out. And uh, I got a chance to work on some of the issues that uh, that emerge out of the Asia financial crisis and then some subsequent uh, emerging market crises. And that uh, more or less defined my uh, for subsequent uh, career. Uh, at, at a certain point in time, uh, my focus uh, shifted from emerging market debt to emerging market and other assets. If the '90s and first part of the 2000s were marked by consistent, large, and devastating uh, financial crises for most emerging economies, the middle part of the last decade was marked by an unprecedented uh, wave of reserve accumulation. You know, most obviously in China, uh, but very broad, in fact. You know, so a set of emerging economies that previously had uh, important financial vulnerabilities suddenly became sources of financing for the United States. Uh, In my view, that contributed to some of the vulnerabilities that led to the global financial crisis, but that's much debated. And then uh, as the global financial crisis started to unfold, uh, I returned to the US government in a so-called political uh, position. Uh, technocratic political position, <laughs> uh, but I was uh, a junior appointee of the Obama administration. And during the Obama administration, I worked on the Euro area financial crisis. I worked on some financial sanctions issues. I worked on Puerto Rico's debt crisis. Uh, a very wide range of uh, of issues. But one feature of being a political appointee is that when American politics changes, uh, my job had to change, and so I've been back at the Council on Foreign Relations for the past uh, several years, but working on, uh, I think, you know, this sort of set of uh, uh, the sort of major international financial issues, and then I've become very interested in the way in which uh, considerations about tax and tax avoidance have started to shape global capital flows, so that I've added that to my kind
0: of uh, research portfolio. Interest, yeah, to my portfolio. Awesome. Because uh, uh, I know you run this very famous blog, Follow the Money, and, and I, on, on Council of Foreign Relations, and I um, read many articles on it, and you write quite uh, expansively from tax to trade uh, to financial flows, and the way that you've kind of connected tax avoidance and Capital flows is so uncanny. I've never thought about it before. Because yesterday at the talk, uh, you you mentioned how uh, you know if uh, you know p- people in the U.S. invest in index fund or invest in China, they don't actually think about it. The Caymans or things mm-hmm. like that. Would you mind just telling us a little bit more about uh, some of your findings there? Okay. Well, there's a uh, a bunch of different finance
1: findings. Sorry, um, one finding for example is that when say Alibaba listed in uh, The US to raise stock you might think that if you were buying Alibaba stock that would register in the global data as an increase in US uh, portfolio investment in China but as a matter of fact uh, Alibaba Listed as a Cayman's entity. Yeah, so it records in the global data as an investment in whatever Alibaba Cayman's LLT or whatever it is Um, And that's that's fairly common. It is very common when it comes to uh, investments in uh, complex securitized debt so uh, when a leveraged buyout is financed by uh, a set of uh, loans in a lot of cases, those loans will be made by a Cayman's entity, and it will register in the U.S. as a loan from the Cayman Islands to the U.S. And then when a Japanese investor buys the collateralized loan obligation that is backed by those loans, it will register as a Japanese investment in the Cayman's. So there's a set of efforts that tries to, that is ongoing to look through those structures. There's another set of st- structures or shells that are probably, in uh, macroeconomic terms, much more important. And that would be the set of uh, uh, financial and tax uh, shenanigans that l- allow largely American, but not only American, uh, companies to move profits out of the United States and into low-tax jurisdictions around the world. So one of the things I don't think many people know, uh, and, and this has kind of emerged from some of the work the IMF has done and some of the work that uh, other very respectable institutions have done, but right now somewhere between 40 and 50% of all foreign direct investment touches a tax haven. Yeah. So when we think of foreign direct investment, people tend to think of uh, a Japanese company building a factory in the United States. Yeah. What you really should be thinking of is an American pharmaceutical company transferring intellectual property rights to its subsidiary in Bermuda uh, and then uh, having an Irish factory that licenses the intellectual property from Bermuda. But the most valuable component of American foreign direct investment right now are the claims American companies have on their own subsidiaries in low-tax jurisdictions. So right now, the single most invaluable foreign investment of any U.S. company, unquestionably, is Apple's ownership stake in Apple Ireland. Yeah, yeah, and that is actually what's in the data, <laughs> rather than uh, anything that would reflect uh, the movement of physical and tangible capital around the world. Uh, today, most foreign direct investment is, in my view. Tied to the chain of transactions needed to shift taxable profits to low tax jurisdictions.
0: I, I, I think you call those phantom FDIs.
1: that, phantom. that was I, the, to be honest. That's the IMF. Uh,
0: oh, yeah. <laughs> a set of
1: uh, yeah, yeah. of authors from the IMF called it phantom FDI, but it is a it's a good term.
0: <laughs> it's a great term. Yeah, yeah, because I remember I went to this talk by uh, the economist Emmanuel Saz who wrote mm-hmm. the book uh, The Triumph of Injustice, who. Uh, he kind of had the whole mapping of how rich people and billionaires and corporations evade taxes, and he was saying how uh, Google licensed its uh, you know search technology to this thing in the Caymans or something, and that's why um, most of the profits generated by Google Ads or Google Search is all they only need to pay the Cayman tax rather than the U.S. tax, and you know so, so we've kind of read so much about those tax prices these days. Uh, we haven't
1: read enough. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> like, I think not enough people realize uh, the extent. The extent. Um, now, to be fair to Google, they shifted uh, to Bermuda. Yeah, Bermuda. And, yeah. Uh, the The technology that they license for search outside the United States. Yeah. So most search inside the United States, the profit on that will be going to Google's California headquarters, and it will be taxed uh, at the U.S. rate. Uh, Google has indicated they're going to unwind their Bermuda structure. We don't yet know what's going to replace it. Uh, Microsoft uh, has moved out of a uh, a set of uh, where it had several different holding companies globally to concentrating everything in Ireland. So people are making different choices. Uh, But in the old system, Google would have basically licensed its... uh, the, the right to profit from its search technology to, a, to its subsidiary in Bermuda, which would then relicense it to its subsidiary in Ireland. So, if you were in Italy or in France and you uh, and you clicked on a, an ad, uh, that ad would be an ad that someone had bought from Google Ireland, and the profit will be swept to, to Ireland. Well, to Bermuda. To Bermuda. I mean, why pay Irish tax when you can pay Bermuda tax? <laughs> Um and then it would be under the old US tax law tax deferred indefinitely. So you technically owed US tax, but you didn't actually have to That's pay okay. the US tax unless you Sorry. formally brought the cash back. Companies didn't do that, and so when they needed cash, they would just issue, their US comp headquarters would issue a bond which investors would buy because they knew that the subsidiary well, abroad the would, by, by would, you know has such large cash holdings. Now there's a global minimum on intangible income under the US tax code, but it's set at 10.5%. So in my view, the tax reform didn't get rid of the incentive to Jeez. shift profit to Bermuda, because yes, you have to pay the US 105 but that's better than paying the US the 25% But we're at 21, yeah. 21 yeah. plus state and local. Exactly. So it, the net effect has been, after all the tax reform, almost no change in these kinds of practices. The the tool tax tools that are used have changed, but the global distribution of profit hasn't changed. And about sixty percent of the profit that American firms report that they earn abroad
0: comes from seven tax havens. Uh, so it sounds like uh, you are kind of against this current. <laughs> <global> <laughs> <structure>. Doesn't <laughs> just sound. I am. Yes, I uh,
1: I'm a big believer that this is a unfair. an unfair. It's it, it's unfair. It creates per- perverse incentives. Uh, and it uh, is ripe uh, for reform. Uh, it's an obvious source for revenue if you are looking to expand uh, say uh you know child tax credits. Yes, uh it's unfair in the sense that small businesses that cannot easily set up subsidiaries in Bermuda or factories in Ireland are paying the twenty one percent tax whereas large businesses that can shift profits around globally are often paying far less. Uh, And it's perverse in the sense that the US tax code, for complicated reasons, uh, but even with the, the new reform, is creating incentives for American companies to manufacture outside the United States because if you manufacture outside the United States, you can more easily claim that the profit is intangible and can be shifted to Bermuda. Uh, If you were a pharmaceutical company that developed a drug in the U.S., held the intellectual property in the U.S., and manufactured in the U.S., you would have no basis for claiming that's a non-U.S. profit. You would be stuck paying 21%. Whereas if you license the intellectual property to a subsidiary uh, offshore and then have that subsidiary offshore relicense, Depends on you. Let's say you sell the intellectual property to a subsidiary offshore. The subsidiary offshore licenses it to another subsidiary that is producing the drug, whether it's in Puerto Rico or Ireland or Singapore, uh, and then you sell it back to the United States. You would have a very strong claim to have generated the profit outside the U.S. and under the U.S. tax law. Currently, U.S. tax law be taxed at a lower rate. And it seems to me that the U.S. tax code shouldn't be encouraging companies to offshore either profits or jobs, yet that's exactly what the tax code now does.
0: Uh, so what would be the solutions? Because I, I think so many people always say, oh, yeah, global taxation doesn't work, or, or you, uh, it only encourages more capital outflows, things like that. So, but, but it also sounds like this kind of way isn't very accurate. Uh, yeah.
1: Look, I believe that if you're serious about it, you could make it much harder for companies to uh, shift profits abroad. You would have to also make it hard to do so-called inversions. So make it hard for an American company to become an Irish company to take advantage of Ireland's 12.5 tax, tax rate. But there are well-known techniques for doing it, exit taxes and the like. Uh, but you would have to, A, make it much harder to set up a subsidiary in a low tax jurisdiction, and then transfer your intellectual property to that subsidiary at a low price. Give the IRS a lot more enforcement power. And then on top of that, I think you need to change the global tax on intangibles income to a global tax. Assess, so by that I mean it doesn't matter whether it's tangible or intangible income. The way tangible versus intangible is defined Creates an incentive to put your manufacturing offshore, but that's sort of technical. Yeah, assess it on a country-by-country country basis, so you can't use pro, uh, tax you pay in Germany to offset the absence of tax in right. and raise the rate so it is at least seventy-five or eighty percent of the headline U.S. rate. If you yes. want to go much more aggressive and more creative, you could move towards what's called one-factor apportionment or two-factor apportionment or three-factor apportionment. But in a system like that, uh, we would have to reach agreement with other big countries on what constitutes a company's profit. And then every country would be able to assess a corporate tax on that profit in proportion to that firm's sales in your country. So rather than trying to... Uh, figure out whether the profit really is profit in the United States, Bermuda, Ireland, or France. You would just say, okay, there's a global company. It has this much sales in France. France is 10% of its global sales. Uh, 10% of its profit will be assessed at the French corporate tax rate. France can't tax its own companies differently from other countries' companies. That is a very hard system to game, But that is uh, much, a much more radical shift in the structure of tax. Uh, than uh, what's uh, now proposed. Well, some people have proposed it. Yeah. <laughs> Emmanuel Says and uh, Gabriel Zuckman have have suggested something like this. Do
0: you agree with them? Kind of. You know, yeah, I, I agree thinking, with yeah, them. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, But you know, I'm I'm a, uh, as much a policymaker as an academic. Yeah. So, if there aren't votes to do something that significant, I'm quite uh, comfortable with some more targeted changes. Uh, that I think would make it much more difficult for companies to profit from the use of, uh, from some of these tax avoidance strategies. Which and would that, also be great, yeah. Yeah, and, I, and I, I think people are perhaps too cynical. Like, they, they say, oh, yeah, you'll <laughs> never stop the companies from <laughs> doing it. Whereas, actually, all these strategies make use of known provisions in the tax law, and if you change the tax law, you get rid of the strategy. Fool.
0: Absolutely. That, that, that's but it does sense. take votes. So It does take votes, which might be hard uh, in the next four years or eight years. We'll we'll
1: see. we'll we'll see. I mean,
0: but yes, it does it does take both. Totally makes sense. Uh, so you study how tax avoidance has influenced capital flows. So it sounds like you've also added the expertise in terms of mapping out capital flows rather than uh, just looking at the tax structure. So in terms of uh, shedding light on FDIs. Um, the capital flows. What lessons do you think we can learn from there, and and how do you think uh, they help us learn more about the tax structure?
1: Well, I mean, it, my interest in some of these questions emerged out of studying uh, capital flows in the balance of payments data. So, I mean, one one interesting uh, little uh, tidbit. Uh, was that uh, three or four years ago, before the tax reform, uh, it looked like Ireland was one of the United States' biggest creditors. Yeah. Little Ireland holding uh, something like three or four hundred billion of U.S. treasury bonds and three to four hundred billion of U.S. corporate bonds. And, you know, it was sort of number three after China and Japan, like on the list of big foreign holders of treasuries. Yeah, I mean, Ireland, yeah, we're now a relatively rich country, unlike uh, 100 years ago. Uh, But Ireland is still a very small country. How did it jump that high on the list of America's creditors? And the quick answer, when you look at the the data, is that, well, uh, that was a reflection of the profit that American companies were holding offshore, which was then being reinvested back into U.S. treasuries. And when you start looking at the balance of payments data, in a world where, as I mentioned, like around half of all foreign direct investment uh, and over half of the profit is in tax havens, you end up, when you start looking at capital flows, an awful lot of capital flow uh, ends up going through a tax haven. And in order to understand that, you have to understand a little bit of the, the tax structure. And understand how to correct for those flows which are just a function of tax and don't really move other markets.
0: That totally makes sense. Yeah.
1: I mean, well, it's, it makes sense, but it's hard to do.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose the, the, doing such research, mapping all those data must be so extraneous, right? I mean,
1: it's pretty, yeah, it takes some work. But hey, look, that's, uh, that's what gives you an edge, uh, understanding how to uh, strip out some of these flows to kind of get a better picture of um, you know, the non-tax distorted flow in the global economy. And it's the non-tax distorted flow which tends to have the bigger impact on um, currency markets and in many ways the balance of payments because a lot of the tax flows are paired. So you have a lot of investment in Ireland and Ireland invests a lot outside of Ireland. It doesn't bid up the euro per se.
0: So, so this might be a little bit too uh, more of a metaphysical, f- philosophical question, which I think you might be really good at, because I feel like during your talks and the way you explain things are often coming from a very a deeper angle than just uh, uh, economics. So, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. It seems that the, the global financial system right now and 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 the way trade actually happens or capital flows actually happen. It's just uh, paper trails and then you, you know, add and subtract certain zeros from certain accounts and and often through those uh, intermediaries or subsidiaries that don't actually play as, as huge of a role like Bermuda or the Caymans or Ireland. So uh, when you look at the, the, the global financial system, you know, as it is right now, um, do you like the way things are right now in terms of... Uh, trade and, and capital flows are being conducted in, in this, <laughs> this manner?
1: I... No, like obviously I would uh, prefer uh, a trading system and a financial system where uh, uh, there was a better correlation between measured flows and real economic activity. Um, and I think you know, with the rise of sophisticated tax avoidance strategies, uh, in the first instance, there's often not much correlation between the measured flow, either on the trade side or on the investment side, and measures of real economic activity. One example was the fact that Ireland was our third, lar- the United States' third largest foreign creditor, just you look at the data. Another example is that Ireland happens to be uh, the largest single market for U.S. software. That's I mean, obviously yeah. uh, a function of a tax series of tax strategies, rather than the fact that Ireland is this uniquely large market for, for actual soft, software,
0: software innovation or things
1: like that. Yeah. And so, you know, that's it's the that discordance uh,
0: that suggests something is wrong. Uh, so I just want to touch a little bit on trade, yep. uh, U.S.-China trade war, and, and you've also worked on um, other euro crises, Puerto Rico, and, and things like that. Uh, what do you think is the phase one deal, and do you think uh, the, the current uh, U.S.-China trade dynamic, the one before and the one right now, uh, have been improved, or, or no?
1: No, it's a hard question. Um...
0: Or Or in other words uh no matter what president trump's intention may be uh do, do you see certain effects positive effects of this trade war or, or trade deal
1: look i think you have to separate out the effects of the trade war uh, uh on and the effects of the trade deal okay uh the the trade deal sort of froze in place uh a large part of the trade war notably relatively high tariffs on chinese goods Uh, and those relatively high tariffs on Chinese goods have clearly created incentives uh, for multinational companies to look to places other than China uh, to produce goods for the U.S. market. There's no doubt a loss of efficiency associated with that uh, shift. Uh, I think with the coronavirus, you can also say Uh, that there may be some long-run advantages to having a more resilient global system if fewer companies are producing only in In China China. and there's more localization or distribution of production. Uh, Any company that is sole sourcing from China is both uniquely vulnerable to any unexpected disruption like the coronavirus and also uniquely vulnerable to tariffs. Um, so I, I I do think that there would there is a a lo- long run gain from having a little bit uh, disruption right now. Uh, well, a little bit more diversity in uh, the global re- diversity and redundancy in the global supply chain. Supply case. chain, absolutely. Uh, there is clearly a short term cost associated with disrupting those supply chains. They exist for a reason. They are very uh, efficient at producing, when all is well, goods we want at a low price. Uh, The trade deal, at least as I interpret it, uh, is a truce, uh, a truce whose terms uh, will likely have to be adjusted to reflect the coronavirus, which is an enormous shock, No, no, no way of getting around it. Uh, but the terms of the truce were that it mostly left the existing tariffs in place. So there's going to be an ongoing reduction in U.S. imports from China. Uh, my guess is that imports from China will fall by about a third based on the tariffs that are now in place, assuming that they aren't reduced later on, uh, which is a, a large shift uh, with a, uh, most of uh Uh, That fall in imports will be uh, offset not by higher U.S. production, but by more production in Vietnam and conceptually Mexico, although right now there's much more evidence of growing production in Southeast Asia than there is of growing production in uh, Mexico. So one one component of the deal is that it leaves in place uh, a set of restrictions that will still have an impact on trade flows. The other component of the deal is that China has agreed to buy uh, a lot of U.S. agricultural products, products, a lot of U.S. energy, uh, and to order, because there's some uh, carefully constructed language, uh, and to order a lot of manufacturers. I say order because Boeing has a production problem, and the deal seems to have been constructed to allow orders to count, not deliveries. I, I think there's probably too much short-term pessimism about China's capacity to deliver on the agriculture and energy commitments. Those, The pessimism is justified because of the disruption associated with the coronavirus, uh, but I don't actually think it would be terribly difficult for China to start, you know, raise its imports of U.S. agriculture from, let's say, 20 to 25 billion a year to 30 to 40 billion a year, for no other reason than China's agricultural market is actually quite protected. And so there's some scope for genuine liberalization. And then because uh, uh, the uh, swine fever has led to an enormous increase in Chinese demand for imported pork and poultry and beef, Uh, and if you just take the incremental increase uh, over the course of last year, it's over ten billion dollars. yeah, it just didn't go to the u s so if you take that incremental increase and shift it to the u s we would be very happy we u s would be very happy we would kind of achieve that goal uh It's a little harder for that to keep going because that's a one off uh adjustment, but I do think there's scope there on the energy side. I think you can as long as you you know the, the target for year two is a little unrealistic. Uh, but the U.S. is now an energy exporter, uh, and if China is willing to buy, it may cost a little more to transport than some of the other sources of oil, but I think China can, can increase its U.S. energy imports. What I think is interesting about these types of deals, though, is that in the sense, uh, China, by giving this kind of concession, is also creating leverage. Should the U.S. go back and try to relitigate and uh, say that, well, China isn't making the broader structural changes that we want, the things we are supposed to negotiate in the second phase of the trade deal? Because if those second phase negotiations break down and the U.S. says, we don't like this, we, we think, you know, you're still...
0: Uh, too protective to your... Technologies or whatever.
1: Too protective of your technologies, too intent on displacing foreign semiconductors from your supply chains, yeah. determined to squeeze Boeing out of your narrow body market. You know all the China 2025 industrial policy yes. issues. Yeah. Then China can say, okay, well, yeah, fine. We're back to a trade war. You know that extra 30 billion of agriculture and that extra, you know, then 40 billion of energy. Bye. So it does give China, by China, by giving a concession now, China is actually giving itself a little bit more leverage uh, in, in any subsequent round of negotiations. So I think, to my mind, it's a truce that probably will survive this year. I think it's well constructed from the a tactical political uh, perspective. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Trump can sell years. it as yeah, a yeah. really big deal. He's helping out his farmers. Uh, And if someone says, well, you didn't get all that much on the structural uh, things or haven't changed China. We have phase two. two. two You know, (laughs) it's like you get, in that sense, it works well. Uh, But in the longer run sense, the phase two issues haven't been addressed, nor has the basic question uh, been settled about whether the US uh, wants to trade with China on the terms that were negotiated when China joined the WTO. If China is going to continue to subsidize uh, semiconductor investment, medical equipment investment, uh, aircraft investment in a way that looks like China is trying to reduce its inputs. It may well be that the U.S. comes to a consensus that those policies don't impose enough of a cost on the U.S. economy uh, to make it worthwhile to pull back uh, from broader trade with China. Or it may be that those policies, uh, and you know, if they succeed and China becomes a, sort of an independent pole of technology innovation, and in some areas the U.S. starts to become dependent on Chinese semiconductors, not just Chinese uh, telecommunications equipment, then the U.S. might get more nervous. So in that sense, I don't think it it has resolved the underlying sources of tension. But you know, you never know. Uh, uh, a framework for uh, a truce that lasts a year, may last two, and out of that truce, short-term truce, a longer-term truce could emerge.
0: Is there anything like you know how tax avoidances distort capital flows? Are, are there anything that distort our view of trade flows and, and the way we look at it? How do we look at those things in a more fundamental, technical manner?
1: Look, the the conventional view
0: is that, you know,
1: Uh, we misunderstand uh, how much we're importing from China because of all the embedded uh, U.S.-designed, Taiwanese-manufactured, or U.S.-designed, Korean-manufactured, or Korean-designed and Korean-manufactured chips embedded in an iPhone. So, you know, the usual argument is that, you know, an iPhone registers as an import from China, but it it embeds a lot of... uh, imported uh, high-end electronics and chips from the rest of the world which is basically true uh, so there's that distortion uh, there's another distortion in an iphone which is that if you buy an iphone in the u.s uh in 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 france right say it's costing you a thousand euros a top end iphone of that let's say 200 euros will be going to the french government as a vat yeah Of that, 300 euros will be going to Apple Ireland, and it will be registering as an export of Ireland and an Irish profit, which doesn't make much sense, but that's how it registers in the data. Of that, 500 euros will be going to pay for the actual manufacturing of a top-end phone and all of its components. According to the recent data, of that, 100 euros would be going to the you know, Chinese manufacturers who put everything together. It used to be 10, now it's more like 100. And then of that, the remaining 400 would go to all the chip suppliers and the uh, camera suppliers, which would typically be uh, Japanese, Taiwanese, and Korean. So there's a couple of distortions. There's the, uh, what looks like it is an import from China, is really an import from on the manufacturing side from most of Asia. It embodies, embodies within it a lot of U.S. intellectual property, but most of that U.S. intellectual property won't be showing up as a U.S. export of intellectual property. It will be showing up as a U.S. export of intellectual property to a tax haven and a very large offshore profit, be it in Ireland or be it in wherever some of the chip designers have located intellectual property. So it is riddled with uh, inaccuracies. Um, All that said, the trade data does tell us something. It is the case that China runs a really big surplus in manufacturing. It is the case that China runs a really big deficit in commodity trade. It is the case that the US runs a deficit in manufacturing or pretty balanced in commodities. It is the case that Europe runs a surplus in manufacturing that exceeds its more modest, compared to China, imports and commodities. And it is the case that a lot of emerging markets, uh, outside, you know, setting China aside, setting India aside, a lot of Africa, Latin America, uh, Central Asia, interact with the global economy largely by producing commodities. So it, there's distortions in the global trade data, But in some sense, like, the common perception is pretty accurate.
0: Yeah. Unlike the capital flow.
1: I think that on the trade side, common perceptions are a little closer to the the underlying than than on the capital flows. I mean, I don't think most people think uh, that half of FDI is just basically moving through shells and tax havens. Nor do most people think that half, uh, in the U.S. case, something like 90% of all FDI uh, is inward FDI is a merger and acquisition, not a greenfield investment. Yeah. Um, so the uh, there there and then there's just this basic inflation of gross capital flows uh, because of so much is is organized through shells
0: and tax havens. Totally makes sense. I, I want to get you back to the conference. I'll just wrap up with a couple quick questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you spend time at the Treasury, and you've also commented on some some of the uh, current policy of this administration. Uh, wh- what do you think of the current? Um, I would say more specifically, some of the policies that Treasury officials have taken on uh, in this administration. Uh, I mean, we've talked about uh, tax cut, which is kind of a fiscal policy. What about the other sort of less uh, um, obvious policies that that the, this administration has taken on that the public might not know about? That you think? Uh, would be nice to know.
1: Well, I I, mean, I do think it is important that not only was this uh, a tax cut, uh, but it reformed the international part of the tax code in a way that, to my mind, didn't get rid of the incentives to profit shift. So I think that is a, a critical point. Uh, I think it is important to note that... Uh, uh, that you know the Trump administration did an experiment. They said we could borrow more without having an adverse effect on the bond market. So far, that experiment has been right. Yeah. We've borrowed a lot more, and interest rates are lower than when Trump was uh, elected. Uh, I think that's an important observation. I think it is also the case uh, that if you were going to borrow that much more, you should ask: Have we gotten uh, as much out of that borrowing as we could, and at least in my view, the bigger gains would have come from uh investing in infrastructure uh rebuilding roads, railways, airports, water systems, and the like uh I think uh you know public investment peaked back in the nineteen fifties uh that's kind of it, and yeah, maybe. Maybe it's time to, to 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 do more of that. Uh, the administration hasn't completely uh, dismantled the uh, uh, Dodd Frank financial regulation, regulations, but they've eased up, and I think that uh, some of the, that easing up uh, is at the margin, adding to uh, future risk. Uh, and I would worry if they were to, if there were to be more easing up. Uh, and then I think on the financial sanctions side, um, this administration has used a lot of the uh, innovations uh, from the Obama era uh, and turned financial sanctions into a very standard foreign policy tool. And we as a country haven't really come to a conclusion about where the limits of the sanctions power that the Treasury has, where those limits should be drawn, what's too far, uh, but I, I I do think that is an an important question going forward. Awesome.
0: Uh, I, we were just talking about how uh, Adam Tooze's uh, book uh, Crash: How a Decade of Financial Crisis Changed the World, and you were in the first chapter of the book. Uh, that book was really shed light on the. Macro financial literature um, that is taking place uh, from Bank of International Settlements and to, to beyond. Uh, what do you think of the macro financial um, quote unquote revolution? Do you think it will kind of continue to exert greater and greater influence on, uh, and fundamentally change many of the ways we look at international monetary economics and, and things like that? Uh,
1: well, I think the crash has changed how we look about uh, the relative uh, importance of monetary and fiscal policy. Uh, before the Great Recession, the conventional wisdom was that you manage the economic cycle with monetary policy alone. I think now the conventional wisdom is that you can only effectively manage the economic cycle with a combination of monetary and fiscal policy. So that's a quite... Uh, significant change. Uh, I think there has been a change in what the acceptable upper limit of leverage is within the regulated financial system. Uh, In theory, we've moved towards a regime where rather than relying on public uh, bailouts, the next financial crisis will be managed by bailing in bondholders uh, of the financial institution to protect depositors and short-term sources of financing. Uh, I think it's still an open question about whether that will work. And I think there's a set of really uh, uh, interesting small-scale for the world, large-scale for the countries that are involved, uh, financial crises that are playing out now. So Argentina, during the low-rate world, went on a borrowing spree. Uh, Lebanon, during the low-rate world, offered depositors two percentage points more than they could get anywhere else. People put their money in the Lebanese banks thinking they had a safe deposit in Lebanon. Those deposits were lent to the central bank and then on lent to Lebanon's government. Sorting out those uh, pockets of leverage, I think, will uh, give us some insight going forward into how how uh, a broader set of crises uh, will be handled. So I think we've moved from uh, an era during the global financial crisis when the biggest and most innovative and hardest to solve financial crises were in the advanced economies. And everyone was looking to the advanced economies to understand techniques of crisis resolution. And I think we're moving back to an era, at least for the next couple of years, where the the cutting edge of techniques of crisis resolution will be
0: uh, found in uh, the emerging world. Absolutely. Uh, And since the name of our show uh, is Paul's Punchline, I want to ask you at the very end of our show, uh, what's the punchline here? I mean, whether it's for capital flows, for trade, for um, financial economic policy going forward, uh, what would be your punchline?
1: Uh, inter, inter, well, I think I would say that introductory economic textbooks
0: can no longer ignore cross-border tax avoidance. <laughs> that's a wonderful way to end this uh, interview. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Very good, thanks. Uh, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, policypunchline.com, uh, rate and review us. Uh, we look forward to hearing back, uh, seeing you next episode you've been listening to policy punchline a podcast generously supported by the julius rabinowitz center for public policy and finance at princeton university we would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by princeton university such as politics and polls by the woodrow wilson school of public and international affairs Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.